This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your lone co-host, Ethan Frisch, uh, and I'm very excited to introduce you to our guest for this week. I think uh, she may be our first international guest ever. You know, we've always recorded these interviews from uh, the shipping container at the back of Roberta's Pizza in Brooklyn, and uh, that we, we've never uh, taken Why Food on the road before, but uh, Zoom, or in our case, Zencast, or the platform we use to record being what it is, we can talk to people all over the world. Um, so I'm really excited to introduce you to Zoe Ajanya. She is a writer, chef, and the founder of Zoe's Ghana Kitchen and Black Book. Zoe, thanks for joining me. Hi, Ethan. I'm honored to be your first international guest. <laughs> it, it hadn't <laughs> occurred to me <laughs> and, until uh, until I introduced you. I should have thought about it ahead of time. You have raised my the levels of joy for today up some. That's what I'm going to say. Wow. That's very special. I feel honored to be able to, to do that. Um, let's, let's talk about who you are and, and what you do. What, uh, uh, how would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Zoya Jonya. I'm a chef and a writer somewhat of a, I guess, food justice activist. If you know, if we're using the term activist broadly as I think we probably should today's day and age. Um, I am a cook Ghanaian food and I have a, a food brand business called Zoe's Ghana Kitchen and a cookbook by the same name. Um, so basically I've been on a bit of a mission for the last 10 years to spread the love and joy that I have for West African ingredients and flavors and yeah, just spread it as far as I can across the world. And recently launched, um, co-founded with Anna Massing and Frankie Redding. Black Book, which is a platform for promoting diversity and inclusion in the food industry, specifically aimed at the BIPOC people working in food, media, and hospitality, and so on. So yeah, that's what I do. I cook and yeah. I talk about food politics and identity and culture and politics. And I where <laughs> where did your where did your interest in food come from? How did you get started down this path? Um, yeah, so I'm Irish Ghanaian. I should have said, I'm, I'm, in case you couldn't tell from my accent, I'm, I live in London, but I actually live in between London and New York. Um, but my parents were immigrants to the UK. So I was born here as a third culture kid. My mum's from Ireland. She is um, a wonderful human. And my dad is Ghanaian. He's also a wonderful human. Um, and they met at a disco in Kilburn in the 70s. And they had me probably on the same evening in celebration of the bride, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, so I had this kind of growing up in Southeast London in England, but with no English family around, and then having this kind of weird mix of Irish, African, you know, Ghanaian food in the home, and realizing, just realizing from a really, really long, young age how important the food from their home was to my parents. And you know, my grandmother used to send care packages of galty cheese and potatoes and red lemonade and stuff like that. Probably all things we could have got in the UK at the time, but it felt special to receive it from, you know, um, with her homemade like, soda bread. And my mum loved it. We all loved it. And then my dad, conversely, would kind of come home with like this plastic bag of 
phenomenally strange smelling and wonderfully exotic looking ingredients like fermented uh, maize though, you know, kenke and smoked tilapia and lots of different weird dried fishes. Well, it was weird to like a seven-year-old, you know. Um, and shito, this traditional hot pepper sauce, it was really funky and stinky and all of these like amazing ingredients. And when I saw my dad cooking those things, it kind of, he went into a trance almost with it. And it was like he was going home for the food. So finding out more about that food was really important to me because we didn't have any Ghanaian family in London, whereas I was going to Ireland every available school holiday because it was just across the road kind of thing and cheap to get to. But we didn't have family that was Ghanaian in London uh, and we you know, couldn't afford regular flights to Ghana. So the food became kind of my entry point to that part of my ancestry and I just fell in love with it. Was uh, was cooking something that you did as a kid? Did you did you help your father out as he prepared those uh, those really interesting yeah. meals? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, as I say, it's like cooking, like <laughs> I mean, it's very loosely saying cooking with him because, yeah. um, but he was like he was there at the hob, and I would be there next to him and just watching and paying attention and asking questions, and you know. He, like the cooking lesson he gave me, if you can call it one, is I remember he was making like something that a lot of Ghanaians will recognize, but to other people it might not sound that special. But there's this like really comforting dish, which is just corned beef and rice and, and like a red stew. Um, and he was making that, and <laughs> I said, I could kind of I could smell it burning and I could see it like all dehydrated in the pan, <laughs> like it's starting to dehydrate. And I guess I was about 10. And I was like, Dad, when do you think, how do you know that's done? Like, when is it going to be done? <laughs> and he was laughing. And he, he just, there was all like these splash marks up against like the back of the hob, you know, the splash back. And he's like, oh, when it, and he's laughing, saying, when it's up there at the back, he's done. And that was it. And then so he turned it off, but it was scorched to hell. So, I mean, I knew it was burned, but I didn't want to tell him that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was basically cooking next to him since I was very young at every opportunity but also on my mother's side of the family you know especially in Ireland cooking is a big deal like family dinners and stuff and, you know all the women <laughs> despite the matriarchy of the home were always in the kitchen and maybe that's part of the matriarchy I don't know but um, I spent a lot of time peeling potatoes and you know getting involved in cooking there as well so yeah I had a lot of exposure to cooking different kinds of things from a young age and I I, I didn't really realize that that was a passion until Ghana Kitchen, to be honest. It wasn't something that I thought of that I was confident in or especially good at. I just always had an interest in it and liked doing it and I liked feeding people. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so tell me more about that transition. How did you decide to, to make it a profession and, and how did you decide to do it in this way? Yeah, it really wasn't my decision. That's the thing. I mean, ultimately, the universe just kept pushing me in a certain direction that was unavoidable to escape in the end. Um, what happened was I got I kind of I got made redundant. I think in about two thousand and nine, it was after that second you know, big crash that happened, and I went travelling around the states for a few months, having the time of my life. And when I came back to Hackney Wick in East London, where I live. We had we moved warehouses and so the new warehouse I was living in was like this blank empty space. Um, you know, no walls, very open plan, old warehouse. And it was the weekend of something called Hackney Wicked Arts Festival here, which used to be this open studios because there used to be a very I mean there still is somewhat, but it used to be a very creative community here. 
lots and lots of art studios and photography studios. So all the studios were opened up. And my girlfriend at the time was a video artist and she wanted to use our space as a video gallery, which was fine for me because we didn't have any furniture at that time anyway. So I was like, yeah, go for it. And um, then, but I couldn't be in the spacing. So I was like <laughs> being annoying, just getting in the way of people in the gallery, right? So I was like, I noticed all, like, thousands and thousands of people coming into Hackney Wick who would never normally come here because it used to be this industrial landscape. There was nothing here. There's no bars, cafes. Um, you know, it's been gentrified to an inch of its life now, but there wasn't anything here then. So I thought, oh, maybe I can make some money. So my friend made a sign saying Zoe's famous peanut butter stew, which is basically my a dish that I used to cook for all my friends all the time, which is my uh, my family version of groundnut soup. And um, and suddenly, you know, because the smell of that dish is so piquant, and spicy, and it's just an amazing smell, and all of that nuttiness as well. <laughs> And I think I was cooking it with mutton. So, you know, the smell was insanely good, as we so knew it would be. And there was a queue around the block for this pot of um, peanut butter stew. And suddenly there was like a party outside my front door and people were asking, you know, where's this food from? It's amazing. And it started lots of interesting conversations. And people wanted me to do that again. But, you know, I had no intention of doing that again. But I said to them, you know, I'll think about it. And the following year, for that same weekend of Hackney Wicked Arts Festival, we turned this flat into a restaurant. So we built loads of tables, borrowed chairs, made chairs and benches. I built loads of fabric, uh, made a Spotify playlist, and we called it a restaurant. And it was Ramajam for three days solid. And I just learned how to cater for five or six hundred people a day on the job. Wow. And um, had you had you ever done insane. had you ever done anything like that before? Did you really just carry a pot of the stew out? onto the street and and start handing out cups how, how did you how oh, did you, did you do mean that? the second year the, the, well the first <laughs> no, time the and first the second year. time yeah no it was just i had a, a, a base i borrowed a wallpaper table and i borrowed a, a baby bellings hob do you know those little tiny kind of camping hobs yeah sure because uh, i didn't have a kitchen i had to i had to borrow a, a cooking pot from another neighbor and that's why i made that dish because it's all i could had was a frying pan and a massive pot so i was like okay i'm gonna make loads and loads of peanut butter stew because everybody loves that um and i cooked it outside i set this table up outside my front door uh and we hung the sign on the gate and and people came People came because of, because of the smell. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'd never done anything like that before, really. Uh, but I certainly hadn't done anything like, you know, having a restaurant in my house. But I had so much fun. Um, and people thought they were in a restaurant, you know, it was incredible. People were trying to book for the next week or the next month or, you know, for Christmas. It was insane. And I was like, oh, okay, guys, no, this is my living room. Um, I'll take your email addresses. And if you want, you know, so it was like that. It was like me pushing, pulling, pushing, pulling cut a long story short I, I decided to keep doing Ghana Kitchen because I was doing an MA in creative writing at Goldsmiths and I thought well this is fun I can cook and I don't have to work for anybody else and I can fund myself through the MA doing that so I did that and I had a great time and I went to Berlin one summer during that period and ran out of money and thought oh why don't I see if I can do a supper club <laughs> and I did that I borrowed somebody's apartment and I borrowed stuff and we did a supper club and one of the editors from Tip Berlin was at that supper club and then wrote about it afterwards. Um, and that's like the equivalent to Time Out for London. Um, and by the time I got back to London, my inbox was bursting with people trying to book for the next supper club in Berlin. So then I was like, great, I can keep going back to Berlin and make some money. So I was basically ended up 
between London and Berlin and decided to move to Berlin to be a writer and live a bohemian life. But then I was coming back to London every week to cater. And eventually I just decided, okay, the universe is telling me that this is a thing. So why does it need to exist? Um, and, you know, I, I analyze all the events and everything that the feedback from all the different people, whether they're from the diaspora or whether they're from just, um, you know, people who hadn't had that food before. And there just wasn't anything like what I was trying to do, you know, like an environment that bridged the distance, um, that made it comfortable and easy to be in the space to eat that food and to have the food served in a way that wasn't, um, you know, ridiculously huge portions for people or not necessarily visually appetizing, do you know what I mean, for a certain gaze or whatever the, the standard is for, um, you know, contemporary Western palettes. So, you know, I was kind of just blending, making a cozy place to eat and fun yeah, and well, teaching say, people about the ingredients as I was doing it. Yeah, say, say a little more about that. What, was, what were the uh, social or political messages that you were trying to send and, and how were you sending those messages? Um, not so much that I don't know that I was trying to send. I mean, I mean, look, the Ghana Kitchen wanted to promote Africa essentially as this amazing continent of abundance. You know, it's like there's so much it has to offer. Uh, my particular point of view was West Africa and Ghana specifically because that was my connection to it. But it was always about trying to highlight the continent as this rich, diverse, and unrepresented, um, I don't want to say undiscovered because <laughs> it doesn't need discovering, it just needs representation. Um, so it was more about that and getting people to understand that there's more than one thing, like African food isn't, Africa isn't a country, it's like a, it's a potential culinary movement, it's a potential, you know, there's 54 countries of cuisines that people don't know not enough about and people haven't had the luxury of you know italians and french cuisines of many hundreds of years of gastronomy and play with food because those cultures have been oppressed for that time and food has always been about sustenance and nourishment and fuel you know um and also celebration but not it's not about <laughs> You know, let me find 10 ways to use this garden egg in a different way and get the most out of it. You know, it's like I need to make dinner because I've got to go and do shit. So you know, there was all of these different things, but also the, the many, many restaurants that existed in London at the time were the West, Af West African restaurants. And there were hundreds and hundreds of them, you know. So that's what I was confused. I was like, I don't get this. Um, and it was because the people in those environments were cooking for their communities, you know, in the same way that my dad was cooking for himself at home those people were cooking for their community. They were cooking to be taken, transported home through that experience of eating it. And that's why I used to say about Zoe's Garnet Kitchen that it was a dining experience rather than a, an event or, you know, we, we were trying to transport people. I was trying to transport people to, to another place and to open their mind about what that other place could be, you know, through its food. So the food was always just like this opening uh, gambit, if you like, to a bigger conversation, um, and that's what it's always been for me, I guess. Yeah. Would Would you tell us a little more about Ghanaian food or West African food in general? What are some of the key ingredients, uh, the the key flavors and textures, um, cooking styles? What's what what yeah. what sort of top of your list for West African dishes? You know, I I try to be really careful about generalizing um, West Africa. 
um, I try to be really careful about generalizing Ghana, to be honest. But I mean, there are obviously key themes, you know, like most West African countries share a rice dish called jollof that originates in Senegal. Um, each country has their own interpretation and version of that. There are famously so-called jollof wars between Nigeria and Ghana about our jollof. Ghana wins, just so you know. <laughs> of course. Um, you know, we share a lot of tuber vegetables like yams, cassava, <clears throat> sweet potatoes, things like that. And what is also common about that is we tend to eat, you know, most of the food cultures tend to maximize every vegetable and every protein. So, you know, we eat a lot of leaves of vegetables. We eat a lot of roots of vegetables sometimes. You know, plantain is a common ingredient, but there's like 300 ways to cook plantain and we will all have a riff of, you know, various versions of things like keliwele or, you know, um, apem or, and, and again, you know, there's two, because <laughs> plantain has, well, I, this isn't a podcast about plantain. I won't bang on about it. It, anyway, it could be. Um, <laughs> that's where you want to go. Um, <laughs> I love talking about on, plantain. About green plantain, yellow plantain, nine week life cycle. Anyway, um, my point is, you know, there are some dishes that might be famous, uh, in like or, or grains like fonio are more popular, say, in Senegal and Sierra Leone, but they are also available in Ghana and Nigeria, but maybe they're just not prom as prominent. And, you know, we will have dried cassava and call it gari, um, and Nigeria will have exactly the same ingredient, but call it something slightly different. So we've all got different names for similar things, but we also process and cook things differently. And it's really important to remember how quickly and vast, I mean, first of all, how vast these countries are, you know. Um, I mean, the UK is tiny, obviously, but Ghana's about 50 size, size this time of the UK. And in Nigeria, it's probably 10 times, I don't know, five times the size of Ghana. And, you know, the, the terrain is incredibly different. And so, you know, what grows there and what's available to eat will vary from parts of landscape to other parts of landscape. So in Ghana, you know, my family are from, my grandmother's from Elmina in the Cape. Um, so, you know, that's a huge port, right? So there's hella, hella beautiful, lush seafood there. But you're not going to get that in uh, Ho, up in the Volta, but you'll get lots and lots of tilapia and perch, you know, which are more like your catfishes, I guess. Um, but then way up in the north, it's really, really dry and arid up there and a very strong Muslim community in the north. And... <clears throat> They eat a lot of fermented foods, you know, and the locust beans. That's where pre predominantly dawadawa comes from in Iru um, and things like that. So, you know, I, I try not to, to generalize because it, that the whole point is they are, <laughs> they are very different. I mean, like American cuisine and British cuisine, well, some people might argue they're not that different. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like Americans might feel differently. Um, but, you know, we... Like the Europeans and Americans, we share the ingredients like potatoes, right, or carrots or whatever, but you've got people in California, you know, reinventing what to do with a carrot, and then you've got somebody else doing something else with a carrot, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's it's same, same, but different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, some of the things that, that stand out to me, my uh, experience with the West African food have been definitely, I mean, those, the fermented flavors that you uh, but also the the gari, right? Like the fermented cassava, um, the, the the flavors of dried and smoked fish, um, and the palm oil. I think which which oh, has wow. which gets a bad rap in sort of mainstream yeah. food conversation. But 
Uh, yeah, well, so t- let's talk a little bit about that briefly. Tell tell us about palm oil. Yeah, so palm oil comes from a red fruit from a palm tree called a palm nut. Um, and you bash it open and you've got this beautiful red. Inside there's a little pod and you bash it inside. There's this red oil, basically. Like it looks really, or it's kind of orangey, actually. Orangey, tangerine ready. But anyway, the reason it's got a bad rap is because the last 50 or 60 years there's a part of the palm sap that gets extracted for use in many many other products and it's like from making um chocolate bars and stuff to making i don't know sometimes it's in glue or like weird random household things you wouldn't think of it but it's like a compound that acts a certain way but anyway it's for that tiny little part of it like huge multinational um companies have been doing a shameful job of farming that product. And, you know, they haven't been using sustainable practices. So we've seen lots and lots of deforestation of natural habitat of orangutans. And so they've been displaced and populations are dying and, you know, just incorrigible farming practices, basically, over the last 50 years. But what we've seen and what I've seen recently is lots um well, A, actually, traditionally, like, you know, smallholder farming from West African countries who are actually making and processing that themselves, and, you know, bottling and drying themselves, they do follow sustainable methods. They're not, part, they don't have the resources and they're not the size of these other kinds of companies, you know, who are tearing down and tearing down um, acres and acres and acres of forest. So they're smallholder farms, like they're doing this fine like they're they're following sustainable practices and they're doing all the right things and i don't think they should be punished for you know whatever big white um you know farmer or chocolatey or whatever you call them people chocolateers candy candy pushers um you know flavor of the flavor of that palm oil from the small farms that you're describing is is really special it's really unlike anything else i've ever tasted earthy and deep and it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit smoky as well. Yeah. It's, it's just this kind of really, it's irreplaceable and there's nothing else like it. Um, and it does a beautiful thing as well. I mean, I just, I literally just cooked with it before getting on here. I made groundnut soup today for my wife because I haven't made it for her for ages. And I was frying some plantain in palm oil. And the minute that sweetness connects with the oil, like the kitchen just lights up. And also the plantain goes this beautiful red color. Yeah. And palm oil has really got, I mean, I can't say for legal reasons it's really good for you because no oils are really, really good for you. It depends on the quantities. But it is pumped full of antioxidants and very, very high little levels of vitamins. And like, you know, it, it's close to, it, its properties resemble coconut oil in many respects. So from a health point of view, it's really, it's a good alternative to lots of other kinds of oil, you know. Yeah. Um, and the flavor profile is unique and deep and earthy and woody and smoky and delicious yeah yeah Uh, let's pause there just for two minutes stay with us we'll be right back this episode is brought to you by hearst ranch the hearst family has raised cattle on california's central coast since 1865 today hearst ranch's signature product is their 100 grass-fed completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. 
Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select Whole Food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. And we're back. Uh, we were just talking about palm oil and the flavor of palm oil. And then the the other one other aspect of Ghanaian cuisine I wanted to mention or hear your thoughts on is the the love of, of textures, of uh, squishy textures, soft textures, uh, you know, anything from uh, fufu or banku or the okra-based stews. How do, how do you feel like that? How does that fit into the bigger picture? Textures. Do you know... What I love about, this is the other thing I love about um, predominantly most West African cultures as well, is the act of eating with your hands and not having that interference of cutlery and steel or whatever it is the utensil's made of and how kind of sensory that is uh, in the act of eating. Um, And, you know, some people might look down their nose at that and see people eating with their hands and be thinking, oh, how uncivilized. But it's really like sensual... Um, and lush way to eat and part of that comes from the textures of the foods you're right and it's like the banku that kind of slimy banku pull and the stretch of fufu and then you know the art of kind of (laughs) manipulating the dough of it if that makes sense and to making it into like this utensil to eat with and you know it, it People, it's a beautiful thing to do and it's an even more wonderful thing to, to watch when you watch people eat who, who eat with their hands three or four times a day for every meal. Um, I love it. It's what, like a, yeah, please keep going. Oh, it's just like a beautiful skill to watch. It's like watching somebody using chopsticks really artfully. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I absolutely know what you mean. It's, it's just such a specific thing to describe and... <laughs> And it really does. I mean, it's almost cliche to say that the food food tastes better when you eat it with your hands, but it absolutely does. And and some of that has has got to be the the, the feedback that your brain is getting from the texture on your fingers, the temperature, the way that uh, sort of it feels as you lift it to your mouth. It's uh, and that kind of soft mouth feel, you know, like that yeah. gooey melt and like the. I love it when fufu does does that. You know, like sometimes it can catch like a pool of soup. You know. And then it all kind of melts <laughs> under your tongue. It's a very detailed description of me eating. I'm not sure it is. Well, so, how do you how do you think this? Uh, you know, the I love the aspect of your food as well. By the way, anything that can get down my gullet faster, you know? <laughs> the less interference of my teeth, the better, because they are falling out of my head at this point. So, <laughs> so well, yeah. How does that um, right? The, all of those textures, things that are are foreign to most non-African Brits or Americans. Um, how how do those textures or those experiences of eating food that one is unfamiliar with fit into your the bigger picture of the work that you do 
um, cooking, writing, uh, speaking. Yeah, you know, I've been on a bit of a journey with it because, you know, I came into the food industry blind, having never gone to culinary school or, you know, worked in hospitality full stop. I've just always kind of been like a self-starter, bit of an entrepreneur type. And it was just, a, you know, it was just very weird. So I came in, when I was, when I started going to kitchen, I had a very clear agenda and I knew what the bigger purpose was behind everything I was doing. And then... You know, once, because Garden Kitchen grew very organically, very, very quickly, um, as I described earlier, and it was like I didn't really have control of the reins anymore. And, you know, once it got picked up by blogs and press and da da da, and then and there was a cookbook, and then it, and it kind of all happened really quickly. And I think that between 2010 and 26, 2015, when I wrote, when I was writing the cookbook, 2014, 15, and been really firm about things and then suddenly there was this new narrative to pay attention to which is that oh other people need to be told how to cook this in a way that they're comfortable with you know and then it was this thing of me who instinctually been cooking my whole life having to learn how to write recipes properly or in a way that wasn't I mean of course I was writing recipes but they were like catering recipes kitchen recipes do you know what I mean not like <laughs> You should yeah. make this because it's delicious. Um, and you should use one quarter teaspoon of this. And you know, But I've been yeah. using my eyes and my ears and my tongue. You know what I mean? Like inst- I, I hadn't cooked like that. Anyway, and then, um, I don't know. So this very gradually, the shift was happening where I started to you know, kind of have to re- reframe, reframe myself, I guess, now. And like what I, you know. It's not that I changed what I stood for. It's just that it kind of got dampened because there were practicalities now. You know, like when you're cooking for a wedding for two or 400 people and it's a mixed interracial marriage, right? And half the people want the jollof this way and half the people want the jollof that way or they don't want jollof or they want... And then you're starting to play with your recipes because your customers and clients need you to do it differently. And then it just sometimes became easier to do it differently. Do you know what I mean? Um, on those bigger occasions. And so you lose a bit of your, uh, you know, you lose a bit of yourself when that, when you make those little changes and tweaks and stuff. And I mean, did it, it did only it... came back to me in like 2019, that how unhappy that, that had made me, that kind of moving from this small uh, personalized thing and doing massive catering jobs and blah, blah, blah. And just losing that ability to have the conversation with the with with the, the client, with the customer, with the person you're you're feeding, so that all those other parts get filtered through, you know, like the culture, like the politics, like the, and then in the end you're just serving a, a kind of whitewashed version of what you used to do, and you might just be selling it for that person because that they've asked you to do that because they're the client, right? But did it did it's it feel like to do that <laughs> did it feel like a loss in the moment as you as you did that more and more or or was that something that you only realized later on when you were reflecting back on and where you'd wound up I think up? it's a bit of both you know but I think you know when you're you notice um I don't know sometimes you can notice stuff happening and willfully ignore it you know or not take the time to acknowledge that it's happening and like sit with it and be like, is this happening or am I imagining it? Or do you know what I mean? That's how I feel most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think 
that the gift of the last 18 months to two years for me has been giving myself more time to think about all of that stuff again, you know, and be like, hang on, is this what I was supposed to be doing? Does this make me feel good? Does this fit with my purpose? Is this part of my passion? Do you know what I mean? And so I'm trying to, <laughs> I don't know if I've even answered your question, but I've got a bit off track maybe, but, um, you know, so I've gone from having this really strong agenda to maybe kind of the agenda got, watered down a little bit um and confused and then it's come back out in kind of 2019 with this oh, okay i see what happened there for that couple of years you need to like reframe and then that's when i started thinking about decolonizing the food industry and decolonizing um you know having a more direct conversation about that stuff and then wanting to change into a shop that sold spices and had these direct transparent supply chains with farms and co-ops in west africa and across africa and as uh, the more I got time to think about doing that, the more energy and motivation I had to make it happen. Um, and then this year, of all years, has been the year where all of the universe's gifts and coincidences have come together to, um, you know, make that a thing. Yeah. Um, would you say a little more about uh, decolonization of food, what that means and, and how you're working on it? Yeah, what does it mean? It's like a never-ending question. It's such a huge topic, decolonizing. At Black Book, we, we did an eight-week series talking about decolonizing the food industry, and each week we invited an international panel of guests to talk on subjects like, um, you know, publishing, food media, um, farming and agriculture, awards and excellence, and... Uh, restaurant reviews and criticism and we kind of tried to find uh, I mean they were broad topic headlines but we wanted to pick areas that we knew from our experience so many people had had problems with right anyway and it was it was really illuminating to just have it all reinforced and for people to share their personal stories and thoughts and ideas and solutions and what came out of it was mostly how big the problem is <laughs> and you know it's like decolonizing Goes, it speaks to really the work before, in some respects, anti-racism, because, you know, society is set up. Yes, we know that's like, you know, white supremacy is a thing. I mean, you know, those institutional and systemic racism is built into, into so many fabrics of society. We know this from the way we speak to the food that is predominantly talked about and lauded and applauded to you know who works in what kitchen at what price who gets up the ladder and who doesn't um you know all aspects of the industry from people getting low paid wages when they're making beautiful stunning products and being taken advantage of by the people in the middle of the supply chain so you know the whole thing of there's just so many parts to it and where do we start we can only start where with what we can do, right? So what I can do is I can start an online spice shop um, and I can make sure that if I know, which I do, having spoken to some of my producers, that big white industries are coming in and buying up all the crops and the land in, in Ghana and farmland and pushing out local farmers and pushing out their ability to export and raising prices and, you know, profiteering off of African food and culture at the expense of African food and culture is problematic for me. So what can I do about it? Okay, 
well, we need to make sure that these co-ops and farms have business, right? And so I'm going to keep telling people about these ingredients and I'm going to encourage them to buy those ingredients directly from the producers of them rather than in this like whitewashed label version of it for, you know, 70% more of whatever the hell it costs or whatever. It's about... So, you know, it's for everybody, it's about what, what's, what's the space you're in? Like, where do you know the problems are? Like, where do you know that people don't talk about the issues of racism or sexism or misogyny in the workplace? Because they're all interlaced and connected, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's about each, you know, Black Book is, is, exists to have this kind of thought leadership around some of the areas and to help people who need help. Um, and I exist as Garner Kitchen to try to you know give people a little bit of education around the importance of <clears throat> knowing where your things come from and knowing that the people who made them were paid well um and have a good life to live you know and yeah aren't slaves for your dinner yeah yeah it's it's shocking that we live in a world where you even have to ask that question where when you walk into the supermarket you have to you have to you you just uh, by default doubt uh, that everybody in that supply chain was paid a, a fair, an equitable wage. Um, people were treated with basic respect. Anyway, it just doesn't, just has not been a priority for food supply chains in recent history. Yeah. On that note, let's let's do some fun <laughs> rapid fire uh, <laughs> questions before we wrap up the interview. Usually um, quite fun, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, uh, what should I ask first? Um, Valerie's better at these than I am. Uh, best meal you've ever had that costs less than 5 or $10? Oh, I mean, but not that I made myself, obviously. I had uh, to eat it out. Uh, either way, oh. if, your call. Oh, oh. Um, 5 or $10. Gosh, it's been a while since I could get anything for less than 5 or $10. I have to think. Well, um, or I, just a, a low price, you know, a low priced meal. You're. Yeah. It's been bloody. It's been a pandemic, Ethan. I've been out. <laughs> Hang on. Oh no, Ursula's. I had a lovely meal. Oh yeah, Ursula's. amazing. In Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's an uh, amazing. What is it? Oh, oh, I need to remember what the thing was though. Ah, what is it? it was delicious. It's a it brand like... new, uh, like a south southwestern food restaurant, New Mexico. Yeah. What are they famous for though? Oh, good question. Uh, they use our spices, as a matter of fact, but I, I have not eaten there yet. Um, I had a really good burger, I know, because we ordered loads of stuff, but there was an excellent burger. But what stood out from that burger was the tomato. Huh. Me and Cicely Sierra were both enamored by the tom- quality of the tomato in that burger. But, um, but the highlight was this. It's like an empanada, like turned mm. inside out or something, like a pie. I don't know. It was, I've right. never eaten it before, but it was delicious. Sounds anyway, delicious. Anyway, sorry, that wasn't quick fire. Let's go. That's great. Um, how about uh, your desert island kitchen tool? What do you bring with you? Mm, it's got to be a knife, isn't it? Yeah. It's going to be my global chef's knife. All right. Um, yeah. How about uh, seasonal vegetable, favorite uh, vegetable in season right now? In season right now? um leeks Mm. what do you do with leeks um loads of things um i actually this evening was going to use them as a garnish on my ground that i was going to fry them i was going to um panay them and then palm coat them you know with parmesan and a bit bread them and then cover them in palm palm leeks basically fry them with some garlic and uh, like an like an onion ring but with a leek and a parmesan crust 
Yeah. That sounds incredible. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm down. Yeah, it's good. Leaks and use a garnish on the on the groundnut soup. Yeah. That sounds great. Um, Zoe, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. Where can uh, our listeners learn more about you, follow your work, get involved? Um, yeah. yeah, please visit zoe'sgarnerkitchen.co.uk or on Instagram, I'm at Zoe Adjonia. Adjonia is spelled A-D-J-O-N-Y-O-H or visit at Garner Kitchen. All right, um, That's on Instagram, by the way. I don't really care about any other social media platforms. And uh, Black Book? And Black Book, yes. But at Black Book. Sorry, not at www.blackbook-global.com is the website there. All right, perfect. Uh, as always, you can reach us by email, whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. You can reach Valerie on Instagram, at Foodie in New York. Thanks to Amanda, our amazing sound engineer to the Red Crickets for our theme song, Blind, and most of all, uh, Zoe, thank you for joining me. It's been such an enlightening and uh, enjoyable conversation. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the meeting heart at the top right of our homepage.